What's going on everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Unscripted, the show that brings you professionals from all walks of life, touching on their backstory, their mindset, and how they navigate through adversity and opposition, while providing you practical tips that might help you on your path. I'm your host, two-time Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist, author, and motivational speaker, Akeem Haynes. Now, let's get into the episode. This week on the show, he's represented his country of the Cayman Islands at three Olympic Games and seven World Championships. He was an All-American and still the current record holder in long jump at Rice University, multiple All-American honors. And just a few short months ago in August, he was inducted into the Southwest Conference Hall of Fame for what he was able to accomplish and do at Rice University. He's also the only athlete behind Carl Lewis to have ran sub 10 seconds in 100 meters and leaped over 8.5 meters in the long jump. He is right now the current associate head coach of the University of Texas at San Antonio. This week on the show, I'm joined by Coach Kareem Street Thompson. Had a great conversation with Coach Kareem. We dove into the ups and downs of his journey as an athlete, both on the track and off of the track. The start of his coaching career, some of the challenges that he faced along that time, and also the type of man that he strives to be and chooses to be every single day. I always heard a lot about Coach Kareem from different coaches and the respect that they have for him. A lot of his foundation from who he is today was established from his childhood, and we get into all of that as well. But do me a favor and leave a rating and review of the show wherever you can leave podcast reviews. So with all that being said, enjoy this week's episode with Coach Kareem Street Thompson. Man, I'm looking forward to our conversation, Coach. First, I thank you for your time. I know it's in the height of the season, in the beginning of it, and a lot of things is moving, man. But I want to start here, Coach. I'm a firm believer in gratitude. You know, I think when it's when it's when you can start your day, finish your day with something to be grateful and thankful for, man, it's hard to find yourself in a negative state. So First question, coach, give me three things you're grateful for today. Waking up. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Waking up this morning. Uh, I cannot, it cannot be overstated. Um, uh, it, it just can't. We, we, we're living in different times. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, if anyone were to stop and put things in perspective, um, I think everybody could probably share that same sentiment i'm thankful for my family that they're healthy Mm -hmm. uh and i'm thankful that um i'm i have a job (laughs) i'm thankful that i have a way to put food on my plate on my 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 family's you know i'm proud to be able to feed my family and again yeah i mean it's the little things man you get you get to this point and you start to appreciate the little things Coach, you've had a lot of things happen to you over the years, and I was trying to think about how I want to start this conversation, Um, but then something recently happened in your life, right? Southwest Conference Hall of Fame inductee, right? Rice University, you know, and, 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 and I've been knowing about you for quite some time, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but you know, for the work that you're able to do at Rice, I mean, 661 in the 60, 1016, 821, long jump indoors, 863 outdoors, all of those things, every person wants to feel appreciated and respected for what they do in any profession. But when that happened, coach, not everybody always gets that type of recognition, but what did that moment feel like for you and what did it represent for you? Um, you know, I, I didn't even know that the Southwest Conference Hall of Fame existed <laughs> until, um, I think it was a couple of years ago. And I think they, 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 uh, uh, coach Leroy Burrell was, yes. was inducted. And I remember going, wow, like, I mean, the Southwest Conference was over back in 95 and, you know, it, it, I thought it was very special that, they were recognizing or still recognizing athletes from that era. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, that, that conference was the SEC before the SEC. And if all you have to do is go back and look at the results, at the accomplishments. You know, the mindset back then was if you finished 
top eight in the conference at the conference meet, mm-hmm. you were going to nationals. Mm-hmm. That was just how good when you take the best schools in the state of Texas and add Arkansas to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're talking blood and guts, man. You're talking, mm-hmm. I mean, every single year. Um, but the part that was amazing about it was that, you know, so we also supported, there was also a recognition that if there was a school from Texas doing things at the national meet, we were all, you know, supportive of that. Yeah. There was a, there was a solidarity, you know, um, you know, that, that, that's just, you know, a a situation where you think about uh, an era where conferences were focused on the geographical location as opposed to now where it's literally, you know, who's, who's, who's the highest bidder. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I'm very, very proud um, of that moment. Very proud. And that, you know, that rights, because what happens is each university puts forward a nominee. Yes. Right. Um, so Rice thought it was pertinent to put my name forward this year. And, and um, yeah, I mean, very proud of it. I mean, what you were able to do during that time, and we're going to get into that a little bit. Um, but I want to start in the present time and then work our way forwards. Right. You've been you've been a coach now for quite some time. And most people probably in this era, you know, they know you as Coach Kareem. But your journey and career did not start at where you are now at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Um, but the first time, like I remember seeing you with the Missouri hat on, right? Um, not, not every athlete turns into a coach or actually becomes a good coach, right? But what made you want it to go that route? And, 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 and what inspired that? Because it's, it's, it's easy to fall back on because we're so used to it. You go and do it. But when you're a coach, it, it it's not just about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I I I will say this: um, not every uh, former athlete is cut out to be a coach, um, and you know, I would have to take it back to the beginning. My my family growing when I grew up in Cayman, uh, my family was a family of teachers. My mother was a teacher. Uh, my great aunt, great uncle, um, you know, all my, my mom's friends, you know, extended family. That was just what I grew up around. Um, when I got to Rice, you know, my, my jumps coach was a teacher. Like he, he was more, much more very professorial. Um, he was, he was Chinese, but, you know, I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. He's very detailed. Um, you know, when you move on and then, you know, I moved on to coach path, another, another teacher. I mean, I mean, God knows, I mean, how many, you know, doctoral, uh, uh, degrees that man could have if he wanted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So having gone through that, you know, and having, you know, being, being taught and being coached by, by, by coaches that actually wanted me to learn what we were doing. You know, being able to sit with Dan, you know, stand stand over his shoulder and watch him go to work and tr- asking those intricate questions. Why are we doing this workout on this day? Why are we doing, you know, weights on this day? Why are, you know, how are you structuring the, the workouts based on what time of the year it is? All those little things, you know, I, I think Dan realized pretty early on that I was I was in tune with what he was doing. And, uh, you know, because we didn't have the money to be able to have him over to Europe with us all the time, he, he coached us to coach ourselves. He coached us to learn how to put together our own programs. And when we got over to, let's just say we we're over there for, for three weeks, four weeks, being able to structure each day, being able to, you know, plan for each race. Um, I mean, he dropped a wealth of knowledge on all of us in that group. Yeah. And for me, I mean, it was, it was clear. It was clear what I was going to do next. Um, you know, I, I thought about being an agent, I thought about um, going into other areas of the sport, but I mean, it, it was clear to me. So my last two or three years with Dan, he would actually send athletes over to me and have me kind of coach him up a little bit. Yeah. And, 
you know, I volunteered for three years at Florida. I volunteered for three years at Florida State. So during my transition, you know, it was about six years where I just hung back a bit and watched some of the best coaches in the biz do their thing. And, um, you know, the best piece of advice, you know, Dan gave me, I remember when, um, you know, I asked him when, when uh, the Mizzou opportunity came up, I said, what, what advice? Do you, well, actually, it was before that. Uh, when I was volunteering at Florida State, I said, hey, I think this is what I'm going to be doing. You know, what, what is your advice? And he said, pick up a rake. Mm. And I was like, okay. Yeah, what does that mean, Dan? <laughs> shovel, pick up a hurdle, right? Pick up the cones, clean up after practice, rake the pit. He's like, Kareem, you have spent 20 plus years of your life being catered to, right? Being a coach means you are now the one. You are now a servant to your athletes. You are now the one making sure everything is in place for them. You are trying to make things as simple as possible for them, where they can show up, warm up, get their workout done, get their weights done, and get out of there. Yeah. Right? All that groundwork has to be done. Right. And yeah, I mean, for about three years, uh, it was tough sledding. It was humbling. It was, you know, to be, you know, to have still have this mentality. I'm a three time Olympian. I've done all these things and I'm being told to go rake a pit. I'm being told to do all. And yeah, it was it hard. Yeah, it was absolutely hard. But I knew that I had to do it. I had to turn that corner. Um, and, you know, now I'm at a point now where even though I have volunteers and I have people that are, you know, willing to help, I'm still there first. And I'm still setting up practice. I'm still doing those things. And, you know, until as long as my body allows me to do it, I mean, that's just how I approach it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's what's how, how it all started. Coach Cream, you have this, you have this, this, uh, and and other people have told me as well too. You know, when they talk about you, you have the spirit of service, right? And 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 not thinking that you're too higher. Um, you know, sometimes people fall in love with a title and they forget, like you didn't always have that title. I, I'm wondering where, where where did this spirit of adaptability, service come from? You 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 mentioned your mom was this, uh, was an educator. What was one of those things that your mom told you that that maybe always stuck with you? Um, that's that's uh, that's actually um, I did a lot of watching. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, and and I don't know about your era, but in in our era, there was a lot of sit down, shut up, be quiet, right? Yeah. Don't ask questions. This, yeah. this is right. Um, so what I can say is that the household I grew up in, and then when my mom um, uh, remarried and, and we had, you know, we have two, I have two brothers. Uh, I was, I was seven years old at this time, you know, and, and the house we moved into and all of that, both of those um, experiences, those, both of those homes were homes where people gravitated to mm. and both of those homes were people that you know were going through trials tribulations that sort of thing you know i don't know it was like a constant situation where you know my mom or my dad you know there was someone that was you know down and out family member or whatever there were, there was always that room that was occupied yeah right and the whole idea was, hey, you know, if you if you need to take refuge, if you needed to, you know, take some time to sort yourself out, you know, you've just, you know, family to just moved to Jamaica from Jamaica to Cayman, you know, trying to get things together. We tended to be those people, you know, and and that's, you know, when when you, when I look at my mom's life, I mean, she spent her life giving. Yeah, that's just what she did. So. I didn't have a choice, <laughs> you know, like yeah. to this day. I mean, um, if I told you how many former athletes, um, you know, from the collegiate world, from, from the, my collegiate career, from my wife's collegiate career that have somehow found, found themselves back, 
you know, have, have come back to us and said, hey, you know, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. Um, we recently had a young lady that decided to come come here and, you know, to have her child. And, you know, it, it's yeah. it's really like uh, you don't think about it. You you just help. Right. Um, and yeah, for, for some people, they might look at it and go, man, like, how how do you do this? How do you find time to do this? And it's not even about that. You know, like I would expect that if I reached out for, to my friends, my family, that sort of thing, they do the same, that they would do the same. So, yeah, that's just it's just our life. It's just the way it is. As a coach, you know, you you a good coach. You aren't just a coach. Right. Especially when you're working with athletes um, and all people, you got to wear different hats at times. Right. Because you, you got to come in and maybe going through something. Maybe they don't trust you enough to communicate. And then maybe they do when they open up and you got to take off that coaching hat and kind of be the mentor or the friend. But then you have to take both of those away and then you have to go be a uh, husband and you have to be a dad. I know your uh, your wife, she works with you guys as well, too. But how do you balance all of those hats and energy? Because it's challenging at times. <laughs> um, At this point. It is literally all immersed. I mean, my kids know my athletes. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is, it is in, it's woven into the fabric of our, of our lives. Um, and, you know, I don't even know if the word balance <laughs> exists. Yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, um, and at the end of the day, like, I've got to make sure that my kids get what they need, the, the emotional support, the you know, all of that. Um, I've got to make sure my athletes are, you know, aren't stressed out. I've got to make sure that, you know, and and what what I tend to do is, you know, there aren't enough hours in a day and there never will yeah. be, right? So, you know, what I tend to do is, you know, and thanks to you know what what dan what dan taught me when when dan explained to me that coaching starts from the minute the athlete enters the track before you even address them if you're if you are paying attention and watching body language yeah. watching their their faces watching you know their their you know whether they're slumped over or whether they're you know just walking really slowly that sort of thing you can pretty much ascertain what's going on before you even step to them. Yeah, yeah. And that that has been a very very valuable tool for me because you know traditionally you know you 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 know it's a situation where you know it might be a uh, an office meeting, right? Or hey coach, can I talk to you for a second or yeah. something like that. And that's a now, you know, now that's an hour of your day that you're now spending with that person. Now, it's a different situation when, you know, if it's someone that's not trying to or, or isn't equipped to communicate that to you, right? You, you kind of have to pull it out of them. I have pretty much mastered the art now where I am, you know, I might walk up and I'll just say, hey, are you, are you all right? Yeah. And just my intonation alone is enough for them to, you know, everything comes out, you know. Um, and I've, I've been very fortunate to to be able to be that perceptive, to kind of cut things off before it gets to critical mass. Yeah. And, and you know, I express it to my kids all the time. I mean, of course, it's not always going to be that simple because, you know, the other, another thing I've learned is that you know, for the athletes that didn't know who I was before they came here, you know, and they get here and then the kids that have been here start telling them who I am yeah. or what I've done. All of a sudden now it's like, you know, because they're like, oh, my goodness, he's been to three Olympics. He's done all these things. 
So I really can't screw up out here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it, it creates a different dynamic. So now all of a sudden they're kind of hiding in plain sight now. They're kind of like yes. you know, in the back and I'm kind of having to pull them out and go, hey, it's okay. It's okay. We're, we're all going to make mistakes, right? So yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Well, as you just said, Coach, you know, uh, uh, kids have short-term memories. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes they don't remember uh, or even go to look to search up to see who was in front of them or who was in the room. Uh, but let's go back a bit to mm -hmm. your Rice days, right? What do you remember most about your time at Rice and just the NCAA system and that adjustment? Because it's a grind. You know what I'm saying? Like, once you get to it, it's a grind. You know, you talked about your time, that being the SEC conference. Right. And it's week after week and it can be grueling and the losses can add up and you can get frustrated. You're trying to learn all these different things. What do you remember most about your time there? How did you deal with that pressure? Well, you know, my how I got to rice is is unique in itself. Um, <laughs> Tell me that crazy story. I've, I, yeah. I heard, Dan was telling me about it, but we didn't have time to finish. Yeah, so essentially, you have to understand that there was no emails, no social media, no yes. no cell phones, texts, none of that existed, right? So in my uh, my my junior year, um, I jumped uh, I jumped eight oh five my my junior year. Um, yeah, seven sixteen, seventeen, seventeen. But anyway, um, I got I got third at the World U twenty Championships um, in nineteen ninety, and at that point, I thought I could go anywhere I wanted to go, right? So um, I, <laughs> I, but I had no idea, no way of getting in touch with the coaches or anything yeah, like that. So yeah. I'm meeting with my high school counselor, and she says, "Okay, what are your top three schools?" And I'm like, "Houston, Southern Cal, Stanford." Right. It's Southern crazy. Cal and Houston, because that was where the 84 Olympics were. Yeah. In the Coliseum. Back then, the track was in the Coliseum. And then Carl Lewis trained at Houston. He competed for Houston, trained at Houston. No brainer. Made sense. That's my idol. That's where I'm yeah. going to go. And then Stanford, my mom was a teacher, of course. <laughs> so I'm like, here's kind of the happy yep. meeting. Yep. You know, good academic school, good athletic school perfect so i had no way of contacting the coaches um so what i ended up doing was i wrote three letters to the registrar's office what'd you say in the letter just hey i'm cream street thompson i jumped this interested in coming here pretty much yeah. pretty much and uh those letters went in the garbage they went i mean they went to the admissions <laughs> office of course they did <laughs> So, you know, a week goes by, two weeks go by, no response. And I'm like, come on. Like, yeah, really? So I'm thinking that they just disregarded me. I'm not realizing that there's, these letters never even made it to the coach's office. Mm -hmm. So I get upset at this point. And I said, all right, that's how you're going to do it. I'm going to find the smallest school in Division One, And I'm going to put that school on the map. Mm -hmm. So back then there was a there was a, a university encyclopedia where you could go through. So I went and found the smallest school and it was Rice University. Wow. So I'm looking through the, the profile and it's in Houston, Texas. So it's about 10 minutes down the road from Houston. And I'm like, okay, hot weather, varsity track, let's go. Mm. End of story. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote a letter to Rice and the liaison between athletics and academics worked in a registrar's office. Remember, Rice only had 2,500 students at the time. Okay. Wow. So someone literally hand delivered the letter to him. He then walks it over to the coach's office. Coach opens a letter and the number three jumper in the world under 20 wants to be a Rice owl. Of course. So he's a little incredulous at this point, right? Uh, and so he goes over to the woman's head coach, Victor Lopez, who happened to be the main official at the long jump when I got third. 
Mm. What is Victor was, uh, has him always will, you know, big up with with IAAF at the time, you know, former NACAC president. Um, so they're like, Victor, some guy named Kareem Street Thompson wants to. And he was like, he's legit. Sign him. Yeah. Sign him. So long story short, um, made my took all my visits anyway. Um, Iowa, Minnesota brought me in in January. I don't know what they were thinking. You you was already out. You was already out it before was, you even uh, got. It was Cool <laughs> Runnings Part Two and Three, right? And then yeah. um, you know George Mason and Alabama were the other schools I visited, but I was sold. I was I was going to Rice. Period. Um, now, did anyone tell me that Rice was de facto Ivy League? Nope. Mm. Did anyone tell me that, you know, when you go to a school with only 2,500 and you go to the Olympics your sophomore year, that you're probably going to have a micro uh, microscope on you? Mm. Did anyone tell me that pretty much the people that I was going to class with were future millionaires, you know, CEOs of companies, doctors, lawyers, that sort of thing? No. Mm. I I had no, there there was no way to prepare me for the culture shock that hit me when I got there, and it took me, you know, it was three semesters uh, before, um, I mean, that everything just dropped. Mm. Um, Nineteen ninety two was that year that really set the tone for the rest of my career. Um, got hurt indoors. Uh, somehow got healthy enough. Won conference. Got went went to outdoor uh, indoor nationals. Placed third or fourth, something like that. Um, went to outdoor nationals. Um, fouled out. Uh, that summer I went to the Olympics. Um, I mean in Barcelona that was my first Olympics. Yeah, I was prepared for that. I mean, no way, shape, or form. I was supposed to go to World Juniors later that year. It was in September. Um, that was actually the year that Otto Bolden said, hello, world. Yes. And, um, so the day I'm flying back to go to Rice, because I had about, it was about a two-week period where I'd have to wait before I went to Seoul career for World Juniors. Um, I got a letter saying that I've been suspended for grades. So uh. literally all those things just piled on each other. And then the final piece of the puzzle was K-Man then decided they didn't want to send me. So all those things happened in 92. And when I tell you, when I, I, I walked into that dark room, and when I stepped out of that dark room, it was like, enough, enough of this. So 93, I ended up number four in the world. 94, I was number two in the world. And my senior year, I was ranked number four in the world. Just back to back to back. And, you know, got my degree on time. You know, but those first three semesters at Rice, oh my gosh. I mean, I, 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 I cringe to think about, you know, in this era, in the transfer portal era. <laughs> Where you can you leave, know, yeah. How many, how many kids would actually have said, yes, I'm going to come back. And then I'm going to do this, right? Um, but I wouldn't be where I'm at now had I not gone through that. How did you pull yourself out of that year, right? Because when you have so many attacks again and again and again and again, you might mm -hmm. say, man, this is stupid. I'm going back home. How did you pull mm -hmm. yourself out of that? Well, it's funny you should say that because, you know, coming from Cayman, I witnessed a lot of friends that, you know, so in Cayman, like Miami, Orlando, Tampa, those are like Cayman 2.0. Yeah. Right. Like it's an hour flight away. I mean, it was nothing to go, you know, for a weekend shopping spree, just get on the plane, go there, get your shopping, come back. So. You know, I had friends from from high school that would go off to college and within a year they're back home, they're homesick, right? All of this stuff. And for me, that wasn't an option. Mm. It wasn't an option. I mean, and I at no point did I ever feel like, you know, I'm gonna quit on this. Never. You know, and and um but 
I'm going to tell you this. I mean, that that day when that letter showed up at the house and the look on my parents' faces, like I was not raised. There was no hope. They didn't hope that I succeed. Yeah. Right. I was going to succeed. And and, and the, the the umbrella and, and the support system that I had in Cayman, I mean, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. Like it, it was it extended throughout the entire island. I couldn't go anywhere without someone like hey you're you're Valerie Thompson's son right yeah that, mm. that sort of thing so you know yes there was shame there was uh, embarrassment there was you know i mean you you add all that up and like i said i mean i literally was sitting in a dark room you know with all my thoughts and with all the emotions and all of that and i literally said enough not happening you know and so, but it was a major building block for my colleague, my, my, the rest of my collegiate career and then my professional career. You know, it reminds me of when I was at Alabama and, and when I got there from Barton, I didn't do anything different, but the schedule was different. You know, I wasn't used to conference being Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but you're leaving the week before and all these different mm -hmm. things. And the classes you're going into a classroom and there's 500 kids and the teacher doesn't care if you're there or not. And at Barton, mm -hmm. there's what 25 people there. So for me, I was like, yo, how? And my GPA fell from like a 3.2 to a 1.9. And I said, man, this mm -hmm. is not okay. And so I just took no. summer school. So I, I a hundred percent understand that. What I don't think uh, sometimes people understand, right, is when you leave the collegiate system now, it's a whole different thing going to the pros. From a business standpoint, on the professional level, you were at the Olympics before. When you finished school, what was that transition like for you at that time? So this, this is where, like, um, you have to understand, like, I was, I, I went on the circuit uh, in 93. Yes. So 93 and 94, my last two years in college, I was over in Europe during the summer. Um, and so the transition was pretty easy. You're already used to it. Um, I was already used to the grind. I was already used to, you know, the difference was, um, you know, when you, going over there, knowing that you're back in that safe place in the fall, and all of a sudden, that safe place isn't there now. Now you've got to pay your mortgage, your car note. You've got to feed yourself, you know, and, and welcome to the big bad world. Like that was that was a transition that, you know, I mean, it, it took me some time to figure out. And I don't I don't think that I truly understood, you know, how to manage myself um you know financially i mean i definitely could have used um help yeah. um you know and and someone to kind of say hey if you're making x y and z you need to put x y and z away and you need to live this way yes and um you know so was there a point there was there a point in time where i was reckless absolutely living above my means absolutely um and and then the housing crash came, the refinance era, you know, where, you know, they were, they were seemingly giving away free money and all of that <laughs> went, went through that too, you know? So, you know, to say that I've lived a couple lives <laughs> yeah. um, is, is an understatement, um, you know, but I, if I had to do it all over again, I'm telling you, man, I mean, I, I loved every single minute of it. Um, you can't, you can't quantify, you know, what it means to, to live in Europe, you know, for half the year for 13 years, like, yeah, you know, and, and travel around the world and, and all of that. I mean, the, and I, and one of the things that I try to impress upon my athletes now is that, you know, it may not be the financial payoff, you know, while you're in it, um, but what you're going to learn in terms of life lessons, mm. you know, it, it now now no one can tell me 
what Paris is. No one can tell me what the London experience is. Like I've lived it. I've I've Italy. Like you you can go down the down the line. Um yeah, I mean that that is an education that you can't pay for. It's a it's a different time now than it was back then. And you know, one of the things uh with me that I've been grateful for is I've been able to be around uh, guys like Donovan and Marie Screen and, and and those guys, right? And Trell Kimmins and Bernard Williams and all of the the sprinters. And so they would tell me all of the stories and all of the gambling that they would do back then. All fun and games, right? But the competitive feel and the competitive nature. What was that like when you were over on the circuit jumping against some of the people that you probably seen on TV as you were this young? This young, talented guy coming up now who is jumping 850, 860, and you're like, wait a minute, this this young cat is on my hip, right? Yeah. Did they say anything to try to disrupt you? Like, what was the climate like back then when you were going and, and, uh, and jumping? So, so, I mean, in retrospect, like, the time that I was competing was the Primo Nebbiolo era, and so we're talking about an era where um, the top athletes were being catered to. The Merlin Audis, the Linford Christies, the Donovan Baileys, the, the Maurice Greens, the, you know, um, the, Mike Con- the Mike Conleys, the Mike Powells, the Carl Lewises. They got special treatment. And it, it's, it, you know, it pretty much stretched from you know, where they got to live as opposed to everybody else, Mm. where, you know, the the special treatment they got at the track. I mean, they were allowed to warm up on the infield, (laughs) right? They we had to go to the warm up area. (laughs) We had to go in the back. We had to to go to the call room, right? You know, (laughs) like and it was like a broken record. You know, you get to the meet, you, you see them on the start list, right? And you're like all right, yes, here we go. Yeah. Get to the warm-up area. You're looking around and they're not here? <laughs> What's going on here? You know, so all of a sudden your hopes start getting up. You start feeling good. Get to the call room. You're in a tunnel. You're walking into the track. Yeah. They already have their marks down. <laughs> just sitting there chilling, just standing at the long jump pit like, hey. you just getting here. <laughs> That was what it was like, you know, and and the idea was the the mentality was, you know, I'm here. You're trying to get what I have. Right. And the when you talk about the long jump era, you know, I, I could talk about this ad nauseum and it it drives me nuts right now. Yeah. But you have to understand, like in 93. 28 uh it was 850 853 846 i was third with 830 something it took 808 meters to make the final at nationals yeah right yeah so that era of of ncaa jumpers myself eric walder um dion bentley roland mcgee um i mean craig hepburn i could go down the line um it's it's one of the most unmatched groups of athletes that competed against each other. And then moving on to the professional life. And who did we have to emulate? The greatest, the two greatest long jumpers in the world were still in their prime. So we had that to look at. It was not good enough to jump 840. It just wasn't good enough. 850 wasn't good enough. Right. The standard was there every single time we went out there. So in my opinion, it's something that's really missing now in in the long jump in particular, because the long jump requires a certain element of madness, certain element of, you know, just losing yourself. Right. If you know that it's going to take 870, 880 then in practice 820 it's not going to, you're not coming out of practice feeling good about yourself mm. right nowadays 
If you're 840, you're in for a medal, guaranteed, right? 830 is in for a medal, guaranteed. So there isn't that impetus to push the envelope. You know, and and it doesn't take. It, it's not a matter of just having one. You've got to have five, six, seven, eight different athletes that are, you know, in that in that area in that area. So, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something that uh, is you know was very prevalent in that era, and it was very 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 intense, like walk into a room and you see your competitors, your hair stands up on the back of your neck and you're just like, Oh, there. and you're like, here we go. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Last, last, last few questions, coach. I have about four more, but you just talked about going into the room and you've seen all these people there and, and, and your neck standing up. Right. And, and, and the hair standing up. Was there, was there a meet? That you were like, you know what, man, I can compete with any of these guys. Yeah, they're jumping, but I'm jumping too. What what meat was that for you that you said, man, I I, I can beat all of these guys? Yeah, so um I mean I would say it was it was nineteen ninety four. Um what was the name of the city? Uh we were in um in Austria. It was up up in the hills. And it was one of Mike Powell's favorite places to jump. And um little small meet. Like it was just, you know, like a, like a, almost kind of like a ski town type area. Um so you know, I'd come off the um USA Championships, felt good there. Um, so I get there and I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling like all right, Mike. We're we're about to we're about to have a battle here, and I ended up beating him by a centimeter or two. Like mm -hmm. he came down on his last jump, and I thought it was pretty close, but it was the first time that I'd ever beaten him, mm -hmm. right? And I ended up beating him one more time that year, but you know, for me, because he was such a you know such a high profile athlete. You know, having broken the world record, all of that. You know, I never felt that I was in that league until I actually beat him. You know, um, and that pretty much catapulted my my you know my 1994 campaign. You know, and and it, actually that year I ended up. Um, you know, we we went head to head quite a bit, and it came down to the Berlin. Um, uh, I think it was still Golden Four back then. But uh, I ended up fouling out because mm. I wanted to beat him so bad um, that, you know, I just tried too hard. But, you know, that that was the year. That was the year that made me feel like I belong in this upper echelon in the top, you know, top jumpers in the world. And that's the thing is, 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 is you've always said on many times before you wanted to jump. Right. You didn't really want to sprint like that. <laughs> and it just so happened, right? And I want to go to 1996 where, you know, you kind of, this is where you started the sprinting part of it, taking it more seriously with uh, working with Dan Paff and, and, and Donovan Bailey and Bruni Cern and that group. And this is where I started hearing about you because everybody would say, oh man, this is the group that Dan had back this and then. And then they would say, oh man, you can't, don't think that all jumpers can sprint and this and that. And so, but I want to talk a little bit about that, but also that year in general, too, because uh, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but you lost your mom that year as well, too. Um, yes. What what yes, yes, yes. what was that like? Because, Coach, that's two different transitions. Oh, that's, yeah. tra that's transitioning to a new group, a new space. Dan's program is a little bit different <laughs> than mm -hmm. most, mm -hmm. but also one of your biggest supporters, the woman that brought you in life yeah. is transitioning out as well too. How were you balancing that? Did you, man, did you ever feel like lost a little bit about at all? Yeah. Um, you know, the 96 Olympics were, was, was the Olympics that was supposed to be my coronation. Um, 92 was the, Hey, go ahead, 
have the experience, see what it feels like, you know, come out of it and let's just rebound from that. Um, and so, you know, 95, you know, I'm, I'm going number four, number two, number four, three years in a row, come around to 96 and I start getting sciatic issues mm. to the point where it was debilitating. Like I, I couldn't even sleep, um, crawling out of my bed and, um, you know, just can't seem to get it right. So get to the Olympic trials and, you know, I haven't really had a, a good setup in terms of competitions and, um, you know, I ended up missing the final by one centimeter mm. in, in, in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, it, it really set me back. Um, now, at the same time, my family um, had planned to be in Atlanta. They ended up going anyway. And that turned out to be the last time that, that we were together as a family. Um, but, yeah, when when she passed away, when my mom passed away in August um, that year, I mean, it literally, as they say, knocked me for six. Yeah. I was uh, completely lost. Like, in terms of why I wanted to do the sport, um, I, I, I could not figure out, like, okay, now what? Now what am I going to do? So I made a decision, um, and it just so it coincided with, you know, meeting Donovan um, on the circuit. Um, I had no idea at the time that Donovan was recruiting me. <laughs> Remember now, you know, Blastoff had... Robert Esme, yep. Right? So he needed another leg for that 4 by one <laughs> And I don't know if he knew what my situation was or my connections to Canada. My grandmother uh, immigrated back in... I mean, it was probably in the 60s. So I had that connection to Canada. So anytime I wanted, I'd, if I had really wanted to become a, a citizen. Could have made it happen. Easily. So anyway, um, so I ended up meeting Dan. Um, so I made the decision to leave Houston, to leave the coach that coached me to age 60 plus, to go somewhere to hide. Mm. Like I literally wanted to uh just get away and i didn't want the pressure i didn't want to um i didn't want to have to deal with it so my mindset was let me go somewhere where there's a giant and i can kind of hide behind you know behind that curtain for a while until i find myself that was the main reason why i made the move now inside of that uh, you know, meeting with Dan, I said, hey, I don't want to sprint. I'm not here. That's not my thing, right? I will, you know, I will do the training, but that's not what I'm here for. So, you know, in 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 my opinion, what, what Dan did um, has to be, I mean, one of the best coaching jobs I've ever, I, I can ever think of someone doing to hear someone tell you, to hear an athlete tell you, this is not what I want to do. And then still coach the athlete to do it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Without saying anything. So understand that fall, you know, I'm, I'm working in with the guys Everything is great. We're doing the workouts. And I'm putting up numbers that Bruni's putting up, that Donovan's putting up, that Vince is putting up. And I'm comparable to what they're doing. And imagine being a coach that can't tell an athlete, hey, just so you know, um, you're world-class. Mm. You're a world-class sprinter. None of that happened. There was no conversation about it at all. So fast forward to 97, um, <laughs> first race uh, was, in, was at El Paso, uh, UTEP. And I think 10.05 flashed up on the clock. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm looking around like, hold up. 
you know, next race, 10-0, you know, and the inside of that, I start to notice a different in Donovan's approach to me. Mm. Now he's showing up a little bit later. Yeah. We're not doing as many block starts <laughs> and training sessions together. I'm like, what happened? What, what, what's going on? Right. Prefontaine, uh, 97. Um, you know, I've got, um, Mike Marsh, uh, John Drummond, Leroy, um, Maurice Green. He just made the move to, to work with John Smith. And, um, yeah, I, again, no idea what was happening. Um, I crossed the line and I'm like, I didn't just win this race, did I? Mm. So, again, all these things are happening, all these blessings, all these, and I am just going, I want a long jump. Like, what's, yeah. what are we doing here? Um, now, as far as the long jump was concerned, rhythm, everything, gone. Was off, yeah. Couldn't see the board, couldn't, no, like, all of that timing that I'd spent, you know, 10 years of my life perfecting. Now I'm running upright. I'm not sitting and loping, mm. all of that stuff. And yeah, I was, I, I was not, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, get to USA championships that year. Uh, first round, Dan tells me, Hey, get to 60, see where you're at. Survive advance. Okay. Gun goes off. I see John Drummond out of the corner of my eye. He's just a little bit ahead of me. I said, I'm just going to latch on to him. Just, just, just ride the coattail. Just ride, <laughs> just ride his coattail. 992 flashes up on his name, and I'm going, no, 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 hold up. What just happened? 996. Uh-oh. <laughs> I walk over to Dan. I'm like, Dan, um, I, I just broke 10 seconds. Like, what? what yeah. is this? And he, at that point, says to me, wait till they see you in the semi. I'm mm. like, what? You knew this and you didn't tell me before. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. The whole time. Wow. Now, wow. at that point, I separated myself. I had to go for a walk. I had to go get <laughs> some hair. I'm going over my head. This man just told me, that there's more to come, right? Again, I, it's, I just, it was not something that I wanted. It was not something that I, you know, wanted to, to do. Um, get to the semi, of course, shoulders come up, everything's tight, and I'm trying to run fast. 10, 17, don't make the final. Mm. But I ended up running for the rest of the year, I stopped jumping in the middle of, uh, of 97 and, uh, ended up number nine in the world that year, average 1009 that wow. year. Wow. But you're um, a jumper, jumper though. You're a jumper. <laughs> so, so what I will say about that is that basically, you know, if you are blessed, if, if you are anointed with an ability, you can try and hide it as much as you want. But it's kind of like, you know, trying to put a hand over a flashlight. It's going to come out. It's going to manifest itself somewhere, you know. And and I spent that year trying to suppress, you know, that light. That's essentially what I did. And, you know, by the time I got to the end of the 97, I had meat promoters looking at me like, hey, if if your agent comes to me and says, I've got Kareem Street Thompson, the long jump sprinter. I'm taking him in the sprints. Mm, wow. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that was already, you had already had a, had a, had an 850, 860 mark on there. And they, exactly. that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. It, it, and it, I have two more questions, coach. You talked about, you went there to hide externally. You were found, right? But, internally as a man at that point who was dealing and grieving with the loss, what did you find about you? Um, 
I found out that uh, up until that point, my whole goal in life was to please other people. Wow. That wow. was literally what I lived for. And that experience um, really taught me how to focus on myself, my well-being, my, my, my mental state, physical state, all of that. That's, that's what really for, forced me to start to focus internally. Why am I out here beating myself up to go over there and perform? Well, it's for me. I, I want to do this. And it was about a three-year period, um, you know, end of 96, 97, 98. 99 was where things kind of, I kind of emerged out of that, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was a very, very tough time. Um, and a lot of the com communication I had with my mom was nonverbal. Yeah. Uh, we, we, you know, we never, it wasn't a... You know, it was it was one of those things where if there was anything that she had said about me, it was to someone else and that person would come back and tell me. Yeah. It was never kind of face to face like, you know, it, no. And, you know, that that I mean, to this day, every time I go home, you know, every time I go back to Cayman, someone will stop me in the street and go, Valerie Thompson's son, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's me. That's me. You know, so I'm I'm constantly reminded. Um Coach, we'll 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 close with this. Um I understand those sentiments very well, you know, especially being born in Jamaica. For some reason, they just don't have it in them to say, you know, I I I love you more than more than a couple times per year. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know it but it, it again you know it's always good to hear but for some reason <laughs> they just hold on to yeah, it yeah yeah exactly there's exactly. a there's a separation sometimes between uh what we do and who we are and it can be tough to mesh sometimes um when you look at your professional career and your present coaching career what what do you want to be most remembered for when you're sitting on the couch, you know, 70 years old, just thinking about life. What, mm -hmm. what do you hope that people take from you when your name is mentioned? At the end of the day, um, I want to be known as someone that, uh, tried to make a difference in this world um one individual at a time and you know someone that uh you know at least helps somebody understand their place on this planet why things are the way they are um i don't know it's it's i i when i would not wish you know, what was dropped on me, mm. on anyone. And what I mean by that is when you're the first to do something for an entire nation, right? First um, world junior medalist, first world championship medalist, first Commonwealth medalist, first Pan Am medalist, you know, like when you're the first, it's not an enviable position because yeah you know there's still there's still that newness to it right and you know i will forever be the first yeah. right so what i have ended up doing for a lot of the younger athletes is that i'm trying to help them now navigate their way through that 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 you know, the maze and the, you know, the potential potholes that they could fall into and trying to make sure they didn't make the same mistakes I did. Um, and yeah, I, I want people to know that I was a servant to the people um, forever. And I don't think that will ever change. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm quite okay 
yes. <laughs> this planet knowing that uh that that was what I'm 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 going to be known for. Uh coach, thank you again so much for your time, man. It's uh I could probably talk for another 2 hours. I always yeah. got a million different questions, but honestly, man, any 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 student athlete that comes to work with you, man, it, I I hope there's a lot of information that you give out, a lot of information that we all have. And I think sometimes the younger generation they just don't take the time to ask. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And um, you know, and Dan will say it all the time. It was like, you ask the right questions, you'll get you'll get the right answers. Yeah. And so, Coach, thank you again so much for your time, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, I'm sure I'll see you pretty soon down the road at some point. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Coach, have a good rest of your day. Uh, God bless, man, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. All right, take care, man.